Hello and welcome to the Selection Show podcast. I'm Ian Heath, news editor at CityWire Selector, and today in the studio I have Sharuk Malik of Guinness Global Investors. Uh, he manages several uh, Asian and China-focused equity funds, including the Guinness Best of Asia Fund and the Guinness Greater China Fund. Interestingly, uh, Sharuk's actually just returned from a visit to China where he spent three weeks, and um, it's an area of particular interest for him. And for many investors at the moment, um, it's probably fair to say that um, this year has been something of a disappointment for a lot of investors in China. Um, we had the lifting of the zero COVID policy and a lot of people are expecting a boom in you know, returns and stock market valuations. It's not quite materialized. And there also seems to be a bit of a souring in sentiment, investor sentiment in China of late. Um, do you feel this is justified, Sharuk? And you know, what do you think the reasons are for the kind of problems China's been uh, had in, on the investment front this year? Yeah, I think it's good to separate the market performance between the fundamental economic data. Mm. So when China started reopening in November last year, markets really rallied, and especially the foreign investors and, for example, the hedge funds piled in very quickly into the large uh, tech stocks, for example, and other well-held um, Chinese stocks. So we had a very strong rally from October to the peak in January, where mm -hmm. markets were very strong. And then since then, markets have trended downwards. I think that is mostly down to the economic data, which has been weaker than expected. Mm. And when I say expected, compared to what uh, the market participants were thinking. One benefit of my recent trip to China was talking to people on the ground, and the people running uh, the companies thought the recovery would take a bit longer than the markets were expecting. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, uh, I, I think the downturn in markets, in Chinese markets, has been justified, uh, given that the economic data has been weaker than expected. But I think where we are at now, valuations are very supportive. So, for example, in our China fund, the portfolio is trading at the lowest level pretty much over the past decade, and you don't really get that uh, bargain very often. And if we look at previous cycles where China has been weaker, policy stimulus tends to kick in, uh, which leads generally to a valuation re-rating. So that's the sort of level uh, we're at now. Okay. Um, one of the issues which has perhaps been affecting sentiment is um, geopolitical tensions. There's this ongoing rivalry with the United States and um, for several reasons. Um, how serious do you take these geopolitical tensions and um, do you think it's how, or how seriously do you think they should affect investor sentiment in China? I think it is a serious risk which we have to take into account, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. So, with some of the US uh, sanctions and export restrictions, uh, let's take the semiconductor industry. Yep, it's made life more difficult for the relevant Chinese firms today, but what it is doing is incentivizing more RD into the Chinese semiconductor supply chain. Uh, five, 10 years down the line, I think you'll have a lot more competitive uh, Chinese firms uh, in the future compared to today. I think what we've got to do from the geopolitics point of view in terms of running a portfolio is on a company-specific basis assess uh, the risks. And I think as long as you assess the risks, uh, China is still attractive. Uh, I, I think what a lot of people do is say, okay, China's too hard to invest in. You've got the macro 
uh, problems, the geopolitical risks, it's too hard for me to touch. I'm not going to invest in it. Whereas I argue through a discipline process where, mm. yes, there are risks, but you balance out the expected earnings growth, the, the valuations, that China is quite attractive today. Okay. Um, so, so what's the key to getting the inside story in investing in China? I, mean, I understand, you know, you've, you you spend uh, quite a lot of time there. You've got um, various uh, techniques and like sources that you go to, mm -hmm. uh, to research China. Can you tell us about this? How do you get the inside story on China in effect? Yeah, it's a good question. I think for someone who doesn't know China, it's quite a daunting market. Uh, there's various factors you need to consider. The, the first way I think is through a well-disciplined process. I think you really have to forget what you read in the press. I think the financial press, especially in the West, is very negative on China. I think if you come in uh, with a balanced point of view and actually look at what the companies are doing, whether that's from an accounting point of view, whether that's from uh, management comments <clears throat> and you assess uh, what is going on in China, I think that is a good place to start. So what we look for generally is first, what are the interesting areas in China? So by that, I mean, I'm not so interested uh, in the old legacy sectors. So heavy industrials such as steel, cement, that isn't really what is going to be driving China going forward. Uh, I think uh, the interesting themes we target are the rise of the middle class, for example, China's move up the value chain, the opportunities in sustainability. So in the EV supply chain, the solar uh, value chain, the Chinese are very competitive, not just from being cheap, but also in a technological sense, they are market leading now. Mm -hmm. And I think, okay, those are the sorts of areas you want exposure to, but then you actually got to pick good companies. So just because you're an electric vehicle company or you give exposure to it, doesn't actually mean it's a good investment. Mm -hmm. They could be growing revenue, but the costs are rising by too much and therefore earnings are going down. So what we also look for is good quality companies. So those with a cash return on capital above the cost of capital. Mm -hmm. So we're already in the right sorts of areas. So giving exposure to the middle class, we're then saying, okay, we're looking for well-run companies who are making good capital allocation decisions. And then we cut the universe from about the 9,000 initial Chinese companies to begin with to about 700 quality Chinese companies that are in interesting areas. So that's a good place to start off with. Okay. I mean, I understand you employ some quite specific techniques uh, when it comes to investing in China. For example, mm -hmm. you, you learn Mandarin, I understand, yeah. and um, you monitor uh, Chinese social media, Chinese Twitter accounts. Can you tell us about what sort of insights that gives you? Yes. So I have been learning Mandarin for just over five years. The reason for that is because if you're looking at China Asia's, so those listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen, they mostly report in Mandarin. It's only... Uh, the, the few largest companies who will have English reports, but let's say 99% report in Mandarin only. So if you're running a China fund, you have to be able uh, to read the reports uh, in front of you. So that's why five years ago, I started learning the language. I'm now at a situation where I can read, write, speak Chinese was useful on the on the trip as well. To get this situation, uh, I know from speaking other languages myself, things can kind of get lost in translation as well. Is that something you've come across? Yeah, I would say with some of the headlines you read, again, in the Western press, sometimes the interpretation of certain terms is not right. Sometimes as well, I've noticed with, say, third party ESG reports in uh, covering the Chinese companies because of the translation issues, they don't always get it right. That's why I think being able to 
read the language yourself and to be able to understand the nuances is quite important uh, for the Asia market specifically. And I think that's been very uh, useful uh, for the China Asia as we've been looking at. Mm-hmm. We own Asia as in our Greater China Fund. Uh, was really useful for the China Asia Fund we just launched uh, in March. Mm-hmm. So the Mandarin uh, knowledge is essential, I think, if you are investing in China. We say, is, is this the key reason why we, we get, you said there's a bit of a distortion in the Western media about China. Is this the key reason, the, the um, lost in translation factor, or are there other reasons why you think this happens? I think there's other reasons as well. Uh, sometimes it is a factor, but I think the geopolitical tensions between the West and China is one reason why China is painted so negatively. If you read the headlines, you think, China is, is not a nice place to live in. If you read certain uh, newspapers, for example, say mm-hmm. in America, and then you go there and people are living pretty normal lives, in my opinion. So if you think of the average uh, person in China, they're looking for their standards of living to improve, to be better than their parents and their parents before them. And mostly that's what you, well, at least that's what I saw in the cities I went to in China. And in terms of social media as well, Yes, I, I pay some attention to Chinese social media. Uh, I would say it also feeds through to our social media as well. So Twitter is a very good source for tracking on what goes on in China. So, for example, last year when some of the COVID protests were happening, within an hour you could see it popping up on Twitter. So I think that's a good space for capturing what's going on. Uh, people think... Uh, the internet is closed off in China, but I can tell you very quickly finds itself onto uh, Twitter where mm-hmm. I can track what's going on very quickly. Yeah, what's interesting to hear about these kinds of misconceptions, and I suppose for someone like you, that's where you see might see opportunities. You might see, you know, undervalued stocks, which um, you, you know have much better opportunity for um, doing well than um, the, the broader picture might suggest. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yes, I it is fair that the economy is weaker than it has been in the past, but at the valuations you're getting now for the portfolio we run, it's a forward year price to earnings of about 14 and a half times for the greater China fund, which looking back on a 10 year basis is one of the lowest levels uh, you're getting. Now, yes, the economy is a bit weaker than it has been in the past, but if you look at what our companies are doing over the past 10 years, they've grown earnings by uh, a compound annual growth rate of 9% a year. Is the current slowdown really affecting these companies' competitive advantage? Not really. When I was speaking to the managements uh, in my recent trip, yes, they acknowledged the slowdown, but the focus was really continuing on what they're doing. The stimulus is expected to come through. I think the Chinese government and the policymakers recognize that the economy needs a bit of a boost. Reports indicate they're talking to yeah. businesses, economists. And just on that point, is China in a better place to provide stimulus than, say, Western countries are at the moment? In some senses, yes. In other senses, they have constraints. So in, in the sense they have more space, because during the COVID uh, period, the Chinese stuck to conventional, conventional monetary policy, they have a lot more monetary space to stimulate the economy. Yeah. So if you look at consumer price inflation right now, in the West, we have high consumer price inflation. In China, it's, it's low. Yeah. Now, it's partly low because the rebound has been weaker than expected. But I also argue because they didn't stimulate monetary policy by anywhere near as much as the West during COVID, uh, they have uh, the buffer room there to, to, to stimulate. 
But on the other hand, they mm. also have constraints. So I think one of the reasons for the weakness in the Chinese economy is the property market. So right. sluggish, if I had to use one word. So let's remember, it's not random that the market, the property market is weak at the moment. It was policy induced, in my opinion. If we go back two years, the government introduced the so-called three red lines policy. Yeah. So that limited the amount of debt a property developer could hold. And then months later, we had Evergrande's uh, basically uh, blowing up where their whole model was reliant on debt, no longer worked. That's why they ran into the issues they did. I don't think the government expected the three red lines policy to be as effective as it was because it really exposed a lot of indebted property developers who couldn't really raise the funds to complete uh, their projects. Mm -hmm. We then had the situation in the summer last year where construction was halted on a bunch of properties and the pre-sales model really just stopped functioning for a while. So the government unwound some of the rules, but we've seen that actually it hasn't been enough. Mm -hmm. And if we look at where we are at today, uh, property prices, they are still falling, but the extent of the decline is narrowing. So we're seeing on a year-on-year -year basis, the decline in property prices beginning to narrow, which I guess is good. It does mark a trough, but if you look at the volumes, they are still falling. So new home starts still down 20 to 30% on a year-on-year -year basis. And that's compared to last year, which was already weak. So the private property developers don't really have the funds to take on new projects. And I think that is the pressure point. Mm -hmm. The government has recently cut uh, or loosened uh, policy. So interest rates were cut by 0.1% the other week. But China's debt is quite high. The constraints the government is facing is that the total debt GDP ratio is about 300%, I believe, in China. Go back 10 years, it was around 200%. If China cuts interest rates, debt will rise further. And then at some point, they will have to service the debt. And then that will be a problem later down the line. The government is really trying its best to constrain uh, the rise in debt, but also acknowledges the need for stimulus. I mm. think they will have to be a bit more targeted. An interest rate cut, I don't think, will do the job. They will yeah. need to give preferential terms for the good quality private developers. So they're yeah. the ones that before the Evergrande situation were being well run. But at the moment, financing is too tough. So I think targeted financing for those developers is needed. Mm -hmm. You then have the question of, okay, with Evergrande and their equivalents, what do you do with them? I think the government should personally split the assets into the good quality assets and the bad quality assets. The good quality assets acquired by the state-owned enterprises yeah. have conservative financing. They have the room to take them on. And the bad assets are spun off or sold to the asset management companies. Because we have been through this cycle before in the late 90s and the 2000s, where the asset management companies uh, take on the bad assets. And I think that is one way uh, China can ease or help the property market without stimulating policy and building up debt by too much. Okay, interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about the future of the um, Chinese economy. We, we, we brushed on it before. Uh, you spoke about the rise of the Chinese middle class. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you, you know, where is China's economy going? Is it, is it going to be kind of more um, insular in a sense? It's going to be more about the, you know, selling to their own consumer base? And if so, how's that influencing what you do as an investor in China? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think the strategy from the Chinese is to move up the value chain. So less making low value added items like toys and basic PCs. It's now the industries of the future. We've already seen that in the, the renewable energy 
chain where the Chinese dominate uh, the solar and wind industries in electric vehicles because a year ago or 10 years ago, sorry, the government started introducing incentives for firms to become competitive in the space that now the Chinese are very competitive in most uh, sub-segments of the electric vehicle supply chain. So those are good examples of the Chinese moving up the value chain. I think that is going to be the story for the Chinese, partly because it is necessary for China uh, to uh, avoid the middle income trap. It is also necessary, I think, uh, because the Chinese don't want to rely on Western markets for everything. Because of geopolitical tensions, uh, you can see that the Chinese are cut out of certain markets. So in the high-end semiconductor uh, equipment, the Chinese can't really buy it anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. because of U.S. export restrictions. So that's a good example illustrating the need for the Chinese to develop their own fields. I think they also still want to remain exporting to the rest of the world uh, because that is how China becomes a rich country. If you think, how does China move from a GDP per capita of $12,000 today mm -hmm. to $30,000 and above, so the Korea-Taiwan levels, it's not making video games, it's not e-commerce, mm -hmm. it's by making things, so electric vehicles. Uh, solar panels and so on and moving up and making more of their own pharmaceutical products and i think that's the story that is the primary aim of the chinese which will then lead to the rise of the middle class because if you're making more advanced exports and components incomes will increase along with that okay well on that point um you, you don't just invest in china you uh, invest in asia as a whole and um uh, a very um, big trend. Well, the thing that people say a lot at the moment is um, we're seeing a lot of um, other countries in Asia doing what China has been doing. You're seeing like countries like Vietnam, Indonesia, they're starting to become these exporters. They've got big populations. They've got big labor force. Um, they've got probably better demographics than China at the moment. Um, how's that affecting you as a broader Asia investor? Do you think these other countries are going to become serious rivals to China? in terms of those more traditional industries? In the lower value-added industries, yes, I think they are going to be competitive. We have been seeing that over the past uh, decade or so, where Vietnam has taken on more market share in the lower value industries, such as clothing, let's say. Uh, th that story is 10 years old in terms of assembling products. Uh, Vietnam, uh, again, uh, definitely a good example. We've more recently seen India trying to uh, take more market share. And I think, yeah, uh, the Chinese policymakers do recognize this trend. I do think it's a longer term trend rather than a short term one. Mm -hmm. uh, companies themselves, so on the bottom uh, up level, uh, they recognize the need to diversify given some of the problems we saw uh, during the COVID pandemic. So yeah, I think it's definitely a trend uh, that is going on, that is going to continue. And I think that is a natural evolution of growth for emerging markets. As China evolves, they can't really be competitive in these lower-ended spaces because their wages are too high, if I'm being very honest. So yeah, that's definitely uh, an interesting development we're seeing in Asia, which I think is still why Asia is interesting. Because yes, while some of this low-value stuff is moving away from China, it's still in the Asian region as a whole. So an Asia strategy can still take advantage uh, of really the whole story. So you have your Indonesia's, your Vietnam's, your India's, which will be capturing the lower end of the market. The Chinese now making that transition from mm -hmm. the low end to the mid end. And then you've got the higher income countries, Korea, Taiwan, let's say chips, for example, yeah. at the cutting edge in that space. 
Okay, interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you about some of the weightings in the um, Best of Asia Fund, which is a pan-European fund. Mm-hmm. Um, so a very big weighting towards IT, um, about a third of the fund and about 12.5% to communication services. Mm-hmm. So um, very heavily weighted to tech. I was just wondering, uh, you know, why you've got such a strong um, conviction in that area and maybe just speak a little bit about artificial intelligence and how you think that might um, play in China. Yeah, we think the tech space in Eastern Asia in particular, very uh, competitive worldwide. There's different areas you can target. So you can target the foundries. Those are the companies that actually make the cutting edge chips. So TSMC will be your typical example. Mm. But in terms of other examples, people maybe haven't heard of, it's the component manufacturers. So we own one good company called Elite Material. It's a Taiwanese company with a lot of its operations in China. They make, uh, they're called copper clad laminates. Think of it as the base material for printed circuit boards. They specialize in environmentally free uh, copper clad laminates. And they've had a good story over the past decade or so where they've been expanding away from smartphones into servers. Mm -hmm. So diversifying their revenue stream. What's interesting is they also have done well on the generative artificial intelligence trend. Mm. So some would be surprised what's a component manufacturer got to do with AI, but on the back end of AI, you've got to have dedicated servers which can process all of the information. So Elite Material, uh, they say for the AI dedicated servers, there's about four times the copper cloud uh, content compared to a conventional server. So that's four times the amount of sales uh, that they can target and the share price has done very well on that basis. The communication services segment of the portfolio uh, will be really the online tech companies. Again, more of a Chinese tilt, whether it's uh, Tencent and NetEase, uh, two well-known Chinese video game developers. Those are interesting companies to target because you've got the big Chinese market, but also the foreign market as well. So NetEase, for example, uh, setting up several overseas studios so they can target the foreign market. Okay, sure. And I um, also noticed you're quite low in the more defensive uh, sectors, um, healthcare and consumer staples, kind of lower weighting there, um, which perhaps suggests to me you're quite op- optimistic about kind of growth opportunities. Is that correct? Is that why you kind of got a smaller, we- smaller weighting to these sectors? Yeah, we, we're still optimistic over the broader Asian growth story. We've also got to factor in the right combination of earnings growth and valuations. So the staples as the defensive plays, everyone else knows the defensive plays as well. So the valuations are quite high. So from right. us, we're trying to give exposure to the growth, but also trying to give some contribution uh, from the valuations. So the slightly more cyclical companies trading at lower valuations, you have the prospects for a rebound in that valuation over a three to five year time horizon. Whereas with the staples, for example, valuations trading at very high levels uh, relative to their longer term average, Odds are those are going to come down because of mean reversion, harming the investment case. Okay, sure. Okay, Sharik Malik, thanks very much for joining us today. And thanks for tuning into the CityWire Selector Show. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Cheers.